Chapter nineteen of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three, by Francois and de Chateaubriand. Chapter nineteen. London from April till September, eighteen twenty two. Pelletier, de Labus meeting with Hangon, our walks, a night in Westminster Abbey. Pelletier, the author of Domine Salvum Flac Regum, and chief editor of the Acte des Apôtres, continued in London what he had begun in Paris. He was not precisely a man of vice, but he was eaten up by a vermin of smaller defects from which it was impossible to cleanse him. He was a libertine, a spendthrift, getting a great deal of money and wasting it on his pleasures, at the same time the slave of legitimacy and ambassador of king christophe to george the third diplomatic correspondent of the count de limonade and consuming in champagne the salary paid him in sugar this ghost of a monsieur violet playing the grand airs of the revolution on a pocket fiddle came as a breton to offer me his services i mentioned to him the plan of my essay of which he strongly approved it will be magnificent said he and immediately recommended me to take rooms near bayliss his printer who would print the work secretly and according as it was written de boff the bookseller was to manage its sale and he pelletier would trumpet its praise in his journal the ambigu whilst notice of it might be taken in the courrier francais in london of which m de montlosier had just become editor pelletier entertained no doubts he spoke of obtaining for me the cross of saint louis for my share in the siege of thionville my gilles blas tall thin and rough-looking with powdered hair and bald forehead continually gesticulating put on his round hat took me by the arm and conducted me to bayliss the printers where without more ado he engaged a lodging for me at a guinea a month i was now in full sight of the golden future but upon what plank was i to cross the present pelletier procured for me translations from latin and english at these i laboured all day and at night on the essay historique into which i worked up portions of my travels and my reveries Bayliss furnished me with books, and I very unseasonably laid out a few shillings on the purchase of some old volumes exhibited on the stalls. Hangon, whom I met with on board the Jersey packet, had kept up an intercourse with me. He was engaged in literature, a savant who secretly wrote novels, the pages of which he used to read to me. He lodged very near Bayliss's at the bottom of a street running into Holborn. I breakfasted with him every morning at ten o'clock. We talked over politics, and particularly about my works. I told him how much I had built of my nightly edifice, the essay, and then I returned to my work by day, the translations. We met again for dinner at an eating-house at a shilling a head. Afterwards we betook ourselves to the fields. Often also we walked alone, for both of us liked to give way to our dreams. On those occasions I directed my course to Kensington or Westminster. Kensington was very agreeable to me. I wandered about in its retired spots, whilst a part of the gardens towards Hyde Park was crowded with a brilliant throng the contrast between my poverty and their riches my forlornness and their numbers was agreeable to me to contemplate i saw young english ladies passing in the distance with a feeling of that delightful confusion formerly inspired by my sophide when after i had adorned her with all the suggestions of my passion i scarcely dared to raise my eyes to my own work death to which i believed myself drawing near added a mystery to the vision of a world from which i had almost departed was a look ever cast upon the stranger seated at the foot of a pine-tree had any of those beautiful women an idea of the invisible presence of rene 
Westminster was another lounge. Amidst the labyrinth of the tombs, I thought upon my own just about to open. Was the bust of an unknown man like myself ever to be placed among such illustrious statues? Next, the sepulchres of monarchs presented themselves to my eyes. Neither Cromwell nor Charles I was to be found amongst the number. The ashes of Robert d'Artois, a traitor, reposed under the flags trodden by my loyal feet. A destiny similar to that of Charles I had just befallen Louis XVI. Every day the iron was reaping its harvest in France, and the graves of my kindred were already dug. The chapel service and the conversations of strangers interrupted my reflections. It was inconvenient frequently to repeat my visits, for I was obliged to give the watchmen of those who were no longer alive the shilling which was necessary for my own subsistence. Outside the abbey, indeed, I whirled about freely with the rooks, and stopped to examine the towers, twins of unequal size, glowing under the rays of the setting sun, above the dark covering of London smoke. On one occasion, however, it happened that, from an earnest desire to view the interior of the temple at the decline of day, I forgot myself in admiration of the architecture so full of boldness and caprice. Overwhelmed by a feeling of the sombre vastness of the Christian churches, Montaigne, I kept wandering about till I was overtaken by night. The doors were closed. I tried to find a way out, called for the usher, and knocked at the gates. All this noise spread about and wasted in the silence proved of no avail, and I was obliged to rest among the dead. After some hesitation in the choice of my lair, I stopped near the monument of Lord Chatham, at the bottom of the gallery of the chapel of the knights and that of Henry the Seventh. At the entrance to the steps leading to the aisle, shut in by folding gates, a tomb fixed in the wall and opposite a marble figure of death with a scythe furnished me a shelter. A fold in the marble winding-sheet served me as a niche. After the example of Charles V, I habituated myself to my interment. I was in the most favourable position to see the world such as it is. What an amount of greatness shut up under these domes! What now remains of it? Sorrows are not less vain than joys. There is no difference between the unfortunate Lady Jane Grey and the fortunate Alice of Salisbury. Her skeleton only is less horrible, because it is without a head. Her body derives its ornament from her punishment, and the absence of that which constituted her beauty. The tourneys of the conquerors at Cressy, or the games of the field of the cloth of gold of Henry the Eighth, will not be reopened in this theatre of funereal pomp. Bacon, Newton, and Milton rest in as profound repose, and are as much past for ever, as the most obscure of their contemporaries. Would I, a poor, wandering exile, consent no longer to be the poor, forgotten, pitiful thing I am, in order to be one of these renowned and powerful dead, sated with the pleasures of life? Life is something more than all that. If from the shores of this world we do not distinctly discern things divine, let us not be astonished. Time is a veil interposed between our eyes and the light of eternity. Sheltered under my marble sheet, my mind returned from these high thoughts to the simple impressions of the time and place. My anxiety, mingled with pleasure, was like that which I used to feel in my turret at Combourg, when listening to the wind. A blast and a shadow are things of a similar nature. Accustoming myself to the obscurity by degrees, I obtained a glimpse of the figures placed on the tombs. I examined the corbels of the Saint-Denis of England, from whence it might be said that past events and the years which have been descended in Gothic lampadaries, the whole edifice a monolith temple of petrified ages. I counted ten, eleven by the clock. The hammer which rose and fell upon the bronze was the only moving thing with me in these regions. Besides this there was nothing to be heard but the distant rolling of a carriage or the watchman's call. These distant sounds of the earth came to me from one world to another. The fog from the Thames and the coal smoke from the surrounding city slowly penetrated into the temple and spread around a second darkness. 
at length a ray of twilight appeared in a corner of the deepest shadows i looked with fixed attention at the growing progress of the light did it emanate from the two sons of edward the fourth murdered by their uncle thus lay the gentle babes thus girdling one another within their alabaster innocent arms their lips were four red roses on a stalk which in their summer beauty kissed each other shakespeare god did not send me these melancholy and charming souls but the light phantom of a woman scarcely arrived at maturity carrying a light protected by a sheet of paper folded in the form of a shell this was the girl to ring the bells i heard the sound of a kiss and a bell proclaimed the dawn the girl was struck with terror when i passed out along with her through the door of the cloisters i related to her my adventure and she told me that she had come to do her father's duty as he was ill not a word of the kiss End of chapter 19